We continue this week with this conversation about prayer, which we were doing throughout the fall, realizing that prayer is something that everybody has some experience with, no matter what your level of commitment in this whole Christian game is, whether you think about Jesus a lot, whether you never thought of him before, almost everybody has innate kind of drives that urge them to pray, at least from time to time. And today we've titled the sermon, the, what is the title of the sermon? It is the childish but critical activity of asking. I've taken that idea because I think it encapsulates two issues about prayer. One, the fact that it's so extraordinarily important and we're enjoined to do it so often for so many reasons in the scriptures. And at the same time, it's so, well, ridiculous seeming. Yes, I just said that. Frederick Buechner says, In honesty, you have to admit to a wise man that prayer is not for the wise. It's not for the prudent. It's not for the sophisticated. Indeed, instead, it is for those who recognize in the face of their deepest needs, all their wisdom is quite helpless. It is for those who are willing to persist in doing something that is both childish and crucial. Prayer is for those who are willing to persist, who are willing to keep at it, doing something that is both childish and crucial. Crucial means important. Integral, it must happen, necessary. Childish means immature people do it, kids do it. Do you think that's a misnomer of how we should think about prayer? Well, James urges us that we should pray in all of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Trouble, if you're in trouble, you should pray. Are you happy? Make songs, sing songs of praise. Sick? Get some people, elders together to pray for you. Most of you find your life happening in any of those three categories defined broadly enough. Trouble, happiness, and sickness. That pretty much defines life. Any given hour of your day. But let's think for a second about this childish bit. Imagine tomorrow at work, or Thursday afternoon, just to be utterly specific, that you were asked by someone, hey, can you meet me with three other people on our team at 1 o'clock because we need to talk about some things? And you said, I'm sorry, I have an appointment. If you then were inquired of, well, what's your, what's your appointment? You know, what's your appointment? Why did you have to stay at lunch long, for instance? Say you went lunch and you had to stay long, you took some personal time. You came back from lunch and... They said, what did you have to do? And you said, well, I had, to go, I had to go get a crown on my tooth from the dentist. You're no anti-dentite. Come on, Seinfeld. You, gotta... you had to get a crown on your tooth. And you know, everybody would be, oh, yeah, yeah. And they'd tell you some story about how they nearly died one time during a root canal. Or you might say, yeah, I had, I had to go with my wife. She's pregnant. We, we had to go to the ultrasound today. We found out the sex of the baby. It's going to be a girl. 
Well, everybody would be understanding of that. That would be fantastic. Of course, those are grown-up things. Those are things that grown-ups have to do. I had to go, we're closing on a property. I'm buying some rental property and we had to go close on the property. So I had to, I had to leave a little early. Oh, sure. Well, that's what grown-ups do. We're in the world. We're grown-ups. We're making money and they're making things happen. The economy depends on this. Employment's in the balance here. We're doing real things for real goods and services, for real people in real time. But if you was to say, uh, I took a little extra time at lunch uh, because I had an appointment with Jesus. I had to go pray because I'm really worried here at the end of the month. We haven't met our sales quotas. And I'm worried. I feel like there's a lot of division in our team here. I don't feel like we're working well together. I don't feel like we're trusting each other very well. I haven't been able to generate enough business. And I'm really feeling nervous about that. And I need to make a lot of calls. But I felt like I really needed to to go and talk to the sovereign king of the universe. Well, if you didn't get fired right then, you would probably melt like that witch in The Wizard of Oz. You would just die instantly on the spot if you said that in real life to a real person at a real job. Wouldn't you? No grown-up person would ever take off work early to pray to God. They might get off early to go watch their kid play soccer, but not to pray to God. Grown-ups go to soccer games. They don't pray. There's money to be made. There are decisions to be made. There's code to be written. There's buildings to be built. There's customers to be pleased. There is no reason to be involving God in all of these real things. It's childish. Who are the best people at asking for stuff? Well, they're kids. If you have them, you know this. One of the things about being a parent is you learn very quickly that there's this, this sort of exponential asking capacity that children have. They can ask for things faster than an NFL cornerback can run a 40. They can think of new things to ask faster than you knew that they were even invented. So the exponentialness of it, the things they keep thinking of to bring to you, to have to decide about... You never even knew existed sometimes. You weren't planning on this. You didn't know. I mean, some things are normal enough. Can we have some ice cream? Can Michael come over? Can I get this app? What app? This Frenchman's like this one. What? You know? I don't know, I guess. Are they going to surveil our house now? Is surveil a verb? Someone look that up. That just sounded either really smart or really dumb. Can I have some new cleats? Can we go to the jump park? The jump park? Is that a real thing? Well, yes, it is. That's how Erlanger had a banner year. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of their new outreaches. Kids ask for stuff, and they say stuff. They say what is ever on their mind. They ask you all kinds of questions. If they don't understand, they just ask it. If they think something, they just say it. I have a niece who's a beautiful young woman, junior in high school, 
And a few years back, we were somewhere at the beach or something, all the kids and the cousins all together. And I don't know, I bent over or something in a less than flattering pose. I don't know, I was picking up something. And she says to me, Uncle Gus, which is a whole other thing why she called me that. There's no part of my name that is actually Gus, but that was a name that I was given for some time. And she says to me, Uncle Gus, why is your belly so big? (laughs) Yeah. And I said, it's because I ate girls who asked stupid questions. (laughs) And then she cried and she never talked to me again. Kids will just say stuff, they'll just ask stuff, they just say what they're thinking, they just ask for anything, they don't feel embarrassed to ask for anything, they just think everything, they, every single request they have is perfectly appropriate. And so here's James putting his voice with a symphony of other Bible voices saying, Hey, are you in trouble? Why don't you engage in something as childish as praying? Are you happy? Well, why don't you do something as childish as sing songs to God about it? Let your praying, the communication with God, take on a melodic quality. Are you sick? Why don't you spend some time bothering other people and interrupting their schedule and asking them to pray for you so that you can all ask God inordinately together? It's childish. That part wasn't that funny. It's childish. That's what it feels to us. It doesn't feel like a real thing. And yet, it's critical. It's crucial. It's a thing that God means for us to do. It's a thing that we are called upon to do all the time. Jesus tells his disciples that It's good that he would go to the Father because they have not yet asked for anything in his name. But if they ask anything in his name, it will be given to them. The apostles had this thought when they were weak and they were scared and they were unsure what to do and they thought they were going to be wiped out by the Romans that they would huddle in a room and do something as insignificant as pray. The apostles of the early church in the middle of their persecution who thought it was so important that we preach this message, this news, not this advice, this news about the reality that Jesus reigns the world. They said it's so important we can't even serve poor widows. We have to have a class of people help do that. We have to give ourselves to ministry of the word and prayer. And guess what? Here we are today, 2,000 years later, having read a Bible that is composed of those dudes who gave themselves the ministry of word and prayer. And it starts to make you think, man, this praying stuff might be critical. It might be important. It might be something. And the reason James would say it's critical and that it's important is because it's, it causes things. It causes things. Therefore, confess your sins to each other that you may, and pray for each other so you may be healed. He actually thinks that if you had sins, you had embarrassing things about your life, things that made your face blush, the the color either drain out, the thought about saying it, or the color gets so bright with pigment that your face looked like a Georgia fan when you admitted it. 
that you could say those to somebody. They could pronounce forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ and pray, and you could be cleansed. He actually thinks that there's a correlation. You ask for forgiveness, and it causes forgiveness. He actually thinks the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. He actually thinks that some sick people will get prayed for, and the fact that someone asked God to do it will mean that they get it done. That's what he actually thinks. Isn't that ridiculous? I hope you don't think it's ridiculous. But it certainly feels ridiculous. And the way that we think and the way that we are, it's not the kind of thing we'd want to say in polite company at a cocktail party. But it's the way the Bible tends to think about this very much. And doggone it, Jesus didn't think the same thing. So before he picked his disciples, he was out praying all night. Why would he do that? Why was he checking resumes? I'm not saying don't check resumes. But he was communing. He was talking to his father because he thought, interacting with God, I'm the kind of guy who's trying to image what being the human person is. I'm trying to be the epitome of human. I'm image of God. What is an image of God? What is he meant to run on? He's meant to run on God. To do only what God wants. So I better talk to him. I better find out what he wants. I better communicate with him. I better respond to him. Because that's what a human does. That's what we're made to do. And he figured out these 12 apostles that were the right men, even though nothing about their resumes suggested so. It causes things. He believes that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That Elijah was a man just like us. And he affected the rain. He made it stop raining by praying for three years. And then he made it start raining again after three years. What would you do if someone at work told you the reason they're having a drought in California is because I prayed so. I hate California. (laughs) Well, you would just ask them if they had taken their meds. Right? James believes, the brother of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, that Elijah's prayer is what got God to enact what he had promised he would do in judgment. And see, Elijah, when he prayed that this rain would stop, that drought would come, he was praying the scriptures. He was asking God to just enact what he had already told Israel he would enact. He said in Deuteronomy, if you ever turn from me, If you ever run after other gods, if you ever put God in the trunk of your car and hope that you can off him in some way so you can go after other gods, here's what's going to happen. The rains are going to shut off. The heavens are going to be barred closed and you're not going to have any food. You're not going to have any rain. You're not going to have any crops. Sure, pray to Baal, the storm god. You saw what happened here? Elijah mercilessly mocks them. Read the story right before what we had read today. Read the story. Baal isn't anything. And Elijah wants to make sure they know there's one God and he does stuff. And he answers prayer and he moves and he's involved in his creation actively. And so when Elijah prayed that the rains would stop, he's saying, enact the judgment you promised in your word for your people in their apostasy. And their God allergy, and they're turning their back on you, 
Of course, all judgment is ultimately designed to bring people back. And that's why he says at the end, Now, Lord, show them that you are God so that they're, and they, they know that you're turning their hearts back to you. All judgments, all harshness, all trouble is meant to bring you back. He wants his people back. He actually believes, James does, and Jesus does, and Paul does, and Peter does, and the psalmist does, and Elijah did, and Abraham did. All these people in the Bible that are heroes whose faith is still alive today in us believe that prayer caused things. That's why it's critical. It actually changed the future. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. C.S. Lewis in one place says, uh, quoting Blaise Pascal, that God has instituted prayer to give humans the dignity of causality. Do we have any philosophy majors here? No. See, there are no more philosophy majors at Covenant. They're all community development majors now. (laughs) Just fine. But causality means you cause things. Philosophy is concerned about this. Science is concerned about this. It's a pretty bold claim. They're like some ordinary guy, some person who can't figure out how to complete their algebra homework, could have a say in how God is going to govern the universe next Thursday afternoon. That's a pretty outlandish claim, and that's the Bible's claim. People like you and me, who don't know what to do sometimes with our kids, who don't know what to do about our own lives, who make really boneheaded mistakes and can't even remember where we put our keys, have been asked to ask God to create a future that he has not seen fit to create just yet. And prayer causes things, and he asks us to believe that and give ourselves to it. And in fact, when you start to think about it, this is actually the kind of thing that God has intended from the beginning and the kind of thing that should help us dignify what this activity of prayer is so it doesn't seem so childish. Lewis also says this. There's a lot of times that we think that certain things we pray for just aren't worth being prayed for. Don't you know that feeling? Don't you have moments where you're praying and you start to think, doesn't God have bigger fish to fry than this? Don't you kind of Aaron Rodgers the moment? Like, yeah, I'm sure God's really concerned about football. Right? And you sound cool when you say that. But that's just because you never thought about it. If God cares about anything, he has to care about who wins the football game. You think about that. I disagree with Aaron Rodgers. I think God does care about who wins the football game, and I don't know what he's trying to teach Tennessee. But I think he cares about what happens everywhere for reasons I don't understand, I admit. But I think he cares about what happens everywhere. I think he's intimately involved in the life of his creation and he wants everyone to honor him and to be drawn near to him, whether in their victories or their defeats and their sorrows and in their joys. That's what James is urging us to. Whether you're crushed in trouble or whether you are elated in praise, everything is aimed to draw people back to God, to We're made to converse with him. We're made to commune with him. We're made to walk with him. That's how you be a person. To put it stylistically wonderfully. That's how you be a person. 
But Lewis would say this, you know, in the middle of these, these moments where you say, should I really be praying that this customer I'm about to meet with would, would, would join on with our company because it will really change the face of our company. It will be so good for our, I think it will be really good for them, it will be good for us, it will be good for our employees. Should I really pray that? Should I really pray that God will help me on my calculus test? God doesn't even know how to do calculus. Just kidding. That's a joke. It's a joke. Should I really pray that God would help me with my calculus test or that God would help me as I'm playing soccer today? That God would help me as I'm filing my taxes or paying my bills or treating this patient or coaching this kid? Should I really pray about this when after all, doesn't God have some fairly large and substantial and significant things with which to deal on the earth? Aren't there wars going on in the Middle East? Doesn't he have Christians being beheaded? Well, yeah, I think he does. Aren't there, isn't there like an education crisis? Aren't there poor people all over the world who need things? Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess I shouldn't bother God with like little stuff in my life. Lewis says, well, sometimes I think that we won't bring petty desires to God. Not because it offends God's dignity, but because it offends ours. One of my favorite stories, and I've told you this before, is from Rosemary Miller in Paul Miller's book. Rosemary Miller was the wife of Jack Miller, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary, started the New Life Churches in the Philadelphia area, was a mentor to lots of pastors around here, including Joe Novenson, Scotty Smith, where the church where Corby grew up, started World Harvest Missions, written lots of books, the sonship material. That he, this man, the Lord used him in amazing ways. He and his wife, Paul will say, the son, Paul Miller, wrote that great book on praying, A Praying Life, which I commend to you. They worked in the slums in Nairobi. They've been all around the world serving the poor, evangelizing. They're people of faith, people of boldness. People expect Jesus to do things. And she was driving once in London with her kids, and someone else was in the car. And she was praying, with her grandkids, I mean, she was praying that the Lord would help them find a parking place. And someone said, Are you serious? You're praying that God would help you find a parking place? And she said, well, how else would you find a parking place? Because you see, people who pray for parking places, now, if that's all you pray for, you got some work to do. Yeah, you do. You're self-absorbed and all that. But if you're someone who has learned to expect that God visits your trouble, your happiness, your sickness, that God's involved in every single moment of your day, that He cares about your work, He cares about the world, and that's why He's urged us to ask Him so that we can confer together, so we can be empowered. Then people who expect God to do huge things also expect Him to do little things like find parking places. There's nothing off limits. My guess is that's how it works. There's lots of people who do the most praying are going to pray about all kinds of things, not just three. Because they've learned to expect that what Dallas Willard said is really right. Prayer is nothing more than talking to God about what we are doing together today. Prayer is talking to God, talking together with God about what we are doing together today. And you know that when God created Adam and Eve, 
that God's whole intent in making us image bearers is that we were supposed to work in concert with Him on this earth to be rulers with Him. To exercise His good authority to act in His name. To do family life in His name and sports in His name and industry in His name and medicine and education and politics in His name. The problem is not in our governing, it's the way we wanted to govern. We wanted it to be in our name. And so Christians are people who start saying, you know what, God? I want, when I go to my job today, because if you have a job, you've got trouble. You should pray. Prayer is powerful and effective. It causes things. I want you, when I go to my job today, when I go to class today, when I become a parent today, because if you're a student or if you're a parent, you're in trouble. When I'm with the kids today as a grandparent, if you're a grandparent, you're in trouble. There isn't any person in here who's not somehow, some way in trouble because we live in a planet that's allergic to God, a planet that's diseased, that's being healed. But it's been shattered. It's been blown to bits in so many ways and so things are needed. Solutions are desperately pined for. And we're called to ask in the middle of these, Lord, how do I represent you in this We're told that prayer offered in Jesus' name will make the sick person well. See, all over the place, Jesus is doing what God did at the beginning. He's saying, up till now, you've asked for nothing, he tells his disciples, in my name. But I'm going to the Father, and then you ask anything in my name, and I'll do it. Ask anything in my name, and I'll do it, and your joy will be complete. This is to my Father's glory, he says in another place. If my words remain in you, and your your words remain, and you remain in me... Ask whatever you wish, and my Father will do it. It's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. God wants His life to come streaming out of you all the time, no matter what you're doing. So that's why Lewis would say, there's two ways to get things done in the world. Your work and prayer. We can do things. You know, like if you want salt on your meal, you say, pass the salt. If you want that chair moved, move it. If you need the door open, open it. But the other way that God has instituted is he's let his creatures have a role in setting the future, not only by our work, but by our prayer. So I would say this to you. If you can work for something, if there's any human enterprise that you're engaged in, crossword puzzles or solving national security issues, If you feel like you can lawfully and legally and in good conscience work for it, it seems to me that you should be able to pray for it. Because they're not separate. Because you believe that God, you're doing everything, theoretically, as a Christian, in his name. If you need to rest, ask for rest. If you need to work, ask for him to work through you. And Stuart, the other day while we were praying... Probably our eldest member. She prayed this. It was public, so I'm repeating it. She said, Oh Lord, this woman is in tremendous pain, just so you know, because you won't know. You didn't know. You won't find out. And I I just told you. Help me never be satisfied, she said, with just sitting down and nursing my needs. Help me never be satisfied with just sitting down and nursing my needs. This is a woman who's in chronic pain, who's hurting very badly right now, and what she's laboring with God for is, please, 
Let me not become the subject of my own research. Let me not become a court reporter who is constantly telling everybody everything that is wrong with my life. Let me not constantly think that whatever's going on inside of me must therefore be repeated, rehearsed, recorded, transcribed, and shared with everyone all the time. Let me not just dwell in that tiny, restrictive, suffocating little universe. I'm in trouble. I'm sick. I want you to work through me so I'm not consumed with me. Work through me so I'm not consumed with me. There's more to say, but I'm going to shut off here. Because I feel like I've got to say this. I was going to skip it. I'm not going to skip it. So this is where I'm shutting off, you see. You don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm having an internal dialogue in front of you. Is any one of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Raise the sick. Call the elders of the church to pray for him. Anoint him with oil. If he's sinned, he'll be forgiven. If he's sick, the Lord will raise him up. Huh? If you don't read that and go, huh? Then you're just not taking it seriously. And there's a lot of people who just don't take the Bible seriously, so they're not troubled by any of the things that it says because they just already think it's not anything. Most people in the West don't think it's anything anymore. That just makes us inventive. We're the first people in the history of the world who don't think the Bible's anything. We're the first people in the history of the world who think it's plausible not to believe in God. In the history of the world, That's progress. But James says here that you should call the elders of the church to pray for you when you're sick. Well, first of all, I'll tell you this. We do this here. So if you should be sick, we shall pray for you. Ask us. Let me know. Let Corby know. We'll get the elders. We'll pray for you. Third Sunday of the month, we will anoint you with prayer and oil and laying on the hands upstairs. Here, at our other site, we'll do it before the service, third Sunday of the month. But we'll do it any other time, too. We'll come to your house. We've done this a lot. But here's the question. How come it sounds like James is saying, if you do this, the causality will mean that people will be raised up, all of them. How do you answer that? Because obviously it is not true. And my first answer is, I don't know. I don't know. That's one of the best Christian answers we've got. We don't have to defend God and we don't have to defend everything. I don't know. Okay, second answer. This is not a question that's unique to prayer. It's a question that goes right at the heart of Christianity. This whole issue about why does suffering happen, why do people die, why does hard stuff happen in people's life, it runs through the center of Christianity. If God's good, why do evil things happen? Why doesn't, if He's all-powerful, why doesn't He do something about it? These are the questions that people have been asking about Christianity forever and ever and ever and ever, and here's its answer. It's only good answer, I think, is that God... The love that made the worlds, the love that fuels the sun, made himself fragile. 
And he stepped into our world, and he who breathed and invented parents made himself subject as an infant to their care. To teenagers who have to figure out when his diaper's wet and when his belly's empty. And he subjected himself to that fragility and to that suffering and to that not knowing and to that discomfort. He subjected himself to a life of children crying, of cripples, of epileptics, of mentally ill people, of living in a world where eventually, as the most righteous man who ever lived, he would be at the hands of wicked people like Isis, who would think that the best thing to do would be to put him down. And so he died with an unanswered prayer. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me, Jesus cried. Yet not my will, but yours. And God said, no. And so he died abandoned, forsaken, neglected, broken, friendless, alone. And if that is how the story ended, then we've just duped all of you to come here today. Because it's stupid to be here. If that's how the story ends, like Christianity is stupid. Don't take this out of context. I just said Christianity is stupid, but I said if, then Christianity is stupid. But here's the thing. We believe also that the God who breathed the world into existence raised him from the dead. And he holds out life. And so we can say to anybody who trusts in him, will God heal every single person that's sick and prayed for? And we say, if they believe in Jesus Christ, eventually, yes. Eventually, yes. Oh, well, that's a cop-out answer. That ain't no answer, says Ed McDonough. That ain't no answer. Everything comes back to raising Arizona. You need to learn it. Well, it is an answer. Because it's an answer that has this feature of God coming in to share your sorrows, to taste death for you, so that you will never face it alone. Why did Lynn Gilbert's life end, though we prayed so much for her? I don't know. I don't know. We prayed and we prayed and we anointed her with oil and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and her life was not elongated. Except now she's healed. So were the prayers answered or not? And we know that one day, more certain than whether your car is going to start or not, the ground where she lays is going to burst forth and she's going to have a new body. And right now she's not in pain, she's well. And she's with God for whom she was made. Why did she not make it through? Why did your someone close to you not make it through? Did prayers not get answered there? I don't know. But then the other way of looking at it is I say, why did my next door neighbor, who was given a death sentence, said you have three, day, three months to live? Three years ago, I think he was told this. The elders anointed him with prayer and with oil. So many people prayed for him. And now he enlivens me with prayer when we pray together on Thursday morning. And he shocks us as he's out mutilating, marauding squirrels by shooting them with a shotgun as they come out of his attic. Judge Hill. Brennan's daddy. 
That's what you hear. Very much alive. God has raised him up. Jane and Henry Henniger lived at the house of Stuart and Leslie Bickley, where Stuart Bickley could not finish his house as a young man, was making videos for his children whom he was not going to know and who were not going to know him. And that was 20 years ago because the Lord raised him up. And 11 years ago, I sat languishing. Why? Why was it heard that for two months when I was in a hospital and a very beautiful wife was carrying a little tiny guy, a bean in her belly, and this little guy was four, why did the Lord raise me up? He elongated our lives. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm glad. And I'm going to therefore do what the scripture says. We're going to keep praying for the sick. Because sometimes we get sneak previews to the coming attractions. And what we believe is that all sickness and all trouble is going to culminate in a wellness that wows everyone. And sometimes we get a sneak peek now. Will you give yourself... To this childish but critical activity of prayer. Prayer that causes things. That changes things. That enacts a future. If you can work for it, you can pray for it. The prayers of a righteous child. Of a righteous woman. Of a righteous man. Are powerful and effective. And any person in here who says, Jesus... I'm a dingy-hearted rebel. Will you clothe me in your righteousness? Can have God's ear forever and his presence longer than that. Amen.